Good morning. I'll start a little bit this morning. Somebody asked me, uh, how in the world did you end up in the job that you're in? Well, I'll tell you, it's pretty simple. I was sitting on the porch one night in Virginia, and uh, I get a phone call from a buddy of mine named Dan. Dan we called Beef. I'd spent a lot of time in the Middle East, so we had become very good friends and spent a lot of time talking. Dan had gone back to work at Air Force Central Command, where I was, uh, where I am currently employed for the next week anyway. And so Dan said, Joel, how you doing? And I'm going, I'm doing good, Dan. Dan actually ran, he was a Russian linguist, and he ran what we call the floor. So he ran that air operations center in the Middle East. And I said, I'm doing great, Dan. It's so good to hear you. How are you doing? And, uh, and he says, I'm doing great. I said, I hear you're getting out of the Air Force. Yep, getting out of the Air Force. And he said, well, tell me about you. What is your plans? And I said, well, I think I'm about to finish it up. This was three years ago. And he said, well, what about, have you thought about going someplace else? And I said, no, I hadn't thought a whole lot about it. And he said, well, what about Shaw Air Force Base? And my interest kind of peaked because they have great medical care there, and Sarah could be taken care of in that area. And I said, well, let me talk to Renee about it. He said, sure, that'd be great. He said, but I got somebody who wants to talk to you. And I said, well, okay. So he hands the phone to this guy, who happened to be the three-star, General Gastala. And General Gastala gets on the phone and says, congratulations, Joel, welcome to AFSEN. So that's how I got the job. So it's been an interesting three years. Mostly that's been a one-year tour, but we kind of swapped it up a little bit, and uh, I ended up there for three years. So we have seen a lot in the Middle East for the last three years. We don't hear a lot about it anymore. But I will say this, still pray for your troops who are in the Middle East. There's a lot of them over there in a lot of different places. So keep them in your prayers. It was a wonderful opportunity to be in ministry uh, with them and just see the great things uh, in the their work and how they relate to people and how they get the mission done every day. It's just really an incredible opportunity. But I say that to say thank you. Ashland Place has been a huge part of that. So when I was endorsed, I needed a home church. And being a preacher's kid, I didn't have a home church. I had moved around everywhere, and Ashland Place put up with me for the last 25 years. So somewhere stashed in your files, there's 25 years of annual reports that I wrote about locations that I was and what I was doing. But one thing I remember is that at Ashland Place, the church always prayed for us, prayed for us as a family. That meant a great deal. It was an encouragement, especially after nine deployments, I believe, uh, in many different locations, and yet when Renee and Jacob and Sarah were at home together, we knew that the church was praying for us, and that just uh, meant the world to us. So thank you, I will tell you that uh, firsthand. But for the text today, uh, I chose a text off the lectionary, but I thought I would uh, bring this one just simply because this is a text I think uh, that I think is important to me, but also is a, pa a passage I think is important, could be important to you today. So it's Matthew chapter 14, guess, beginning at verse 22 through 33. Immediately, he made his way to, he made the disciples get into the boat to go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain himself to pray. 
And evening came, and he was there alone. But by this time, the boat had been battered by the waves. It was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking on the water toward them. And when the disciples saw, this, saw him on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. And he cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke and said, Take heart. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he started walking on the water, and he came toward Jesus. And when he noticed the strong winds, he became frightened and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, and he caught him by the hand, saying, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were in the boat worshipped him. May God add his blessings to these holy words. I got an email a few weeks back from a fellow named Ben Aldis. You may not know who Ben is, but if you ride Peloton, you may know who Ben Aldis is. Ben Aldis is my Peloton coach. I learned that as I travel, the military in their infinite wisdom has put Peloton bikes at most of the locations that I go to so I can keep up my exercise. So it was quite uh, interesting to receive an email from Ben Altus. And uh, what it said was, we're missing you on the leaderboard. And reminded me the purpose of exercising with Peloton. This is a place that you come to get fit with mind and with spirit. It is a place where you make the best of yourself. I thought, hmm, that's pretty clear. You know, when I read that, I couldn't help but think about the church a little bit. And perhaps we need an email like that that's sent to us to remind us that we need to be in a place where we're lifted up, a place where we're nourished, a place where we can grow a place where we can be a part of the kingdom of God and grow together. More than, to, more than ever today, we need that. You look at world events, you look at the state of the church, you listen to all the things that are going around you, and it's like looking into the storms. We don't know which way to turn at times. But let me encourage you. You're at the right place. Now, I know Ben made a mistake when he said, welcome, we're missing you on the leaderboard, because I was never on the leaderboard. <laughs> but the fact was, I know my place. That's important. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, there's one thing clear. If anybody ever asks you about the Gospel of Matthew, the answer is this. It's about the kingdom of God. That's all you got to say. And you got the answer right. But when you move through the kingdom of the move through the gospel of Matthew, you begin to see it unfold in a beautiful way. It's like a portrait that's being painted right in front of you. As you go through, you hear the message of John the Baptist. 
And you may recall those words. John the Baptist shows up in Matthew chapter 3, and he says, I baptize you with water repentance, but, I'm, but the one who's coming after me is mightier than I, those whose sandals that I am not worthy to, to, to carry. And then we enter into Jesus' ministry, his arrival, and his preaching, and his teaching. That's about Matthew chapter 5. I think we call that the Sermon on the Mount, beginning of chapter 5 and 7. And he begins that in such a wonderful way, especially for those of us who are in the South, we begin to appreciate this. It uses a word that we're familiar with. It uses the word blessed. Now, we're not talking about bless your heart. That means something else in the South. But we're talking about the Beatitudes. Remember those? Beatitudes. These are the attitudes that we have to have, or these are the attitudes that we have when we begin to become a part of God's kingdom. And look at those words briefly. That's in Matthew chapter 5, right at the very beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the eternal shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you and others when they revile and persecute you and utter all evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Thank you for being patient as I read that. But it's important. It's what matters. It is so easy to get caught up in the world that we forget who we are sometimes. So Matthew takes a moment, he brings us back to the base. He says, this is who you are. There's more. Because if you look at chapter 13, he starts those stories, those parables that have those powerful messages. You remember the sower? The sower goes out and he sows the seeds. He goes out and he throws out the soil and sometimes, sometimes the seeds land on hard soil, sometimes it lands on rocky soil, but sometimes it lands on fertile soil and it grows. He tells us a story about the mustard seed. He says, if we simply have the faith of a mustard seed, it's enough. Have you ever been in those places where you didn't know where to turn, what to do, where to go? You didn't know which way was up. But Jesus tells you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, that's all you need. And then he goes on and talks about a hidden treasure. 
and tells us a lot about not only what the treasure of heaven is like, but he tells us and reminds us what it costs to be in this mode of disciple or being a disciple. It's a wonderful story. You can't be, you can't help but be moved by the scripture that is read here in Matthew. I went to hear a friend of mine speak last week. He's from Enterprise, Alabama. He's actually the president of uh, Charleston Southern University. He's about to go be the president at Liberty Bible College. So this was his farewell that he was speaking, but he spoke a little, about his, a little bit about his grandmother, who was from the South. And he always said, or he said, she always said, when she read a moving part of the scripture, there was one response in his tradition, and that was his grandmother's response, and that was, mm, 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 mm. When we learn to be kingdom people, it makes all the difference in the world. Look at Peter's life. So you remember his calling? So he goes and he hears Jesus teach, and he hears the sermons and the preaching, and Jesus looks at him and he says, come and follow me. And then what does it say next? He left everything and he followed him. Now, we find Peter, there are a lot of theologians that would argue that Peter's not a good example of the kingdom of God and not a good example that we should be using. But I tell you, I think Peter is the perfect person because he's a lot like all of us. We have our faults and we have our failures, we have our challenges, things go well sometimes, sometimes they go most, most of the, but sometimes they can go well most of the time. But there are days when we are battered and we are beaten and we simply need to know who to lean on. So I want to talk about this text this morning from Matthew chapter 4, 14 because I think it's important. And I think it teaches us a little bit about who Peter is. And can teach us maybe a little bit about ourself. When you look at that text, you have to remember that this is not the first time that they've been in a boat together. Chapter 8, the disciples are in the boat. And there's a storm that comes and it beats up against the boat. Night comes and Jesus is asleep up in the front of the boat. And they're all worried and concerned, and finally they would go to Jesus and wake him up and say, aren't you concerned about us? And Jesus gets up and he says, oh, you little faith. And then he raises his hand and he says, peace be still. Now I'm from the south. Now we have these disciples getting in the boat the second time. There's a, I have a lot of experience with that. Conrad Pierce probably can tell you a little bit about that. I've had a lot of people go fishing with me. One of them is his partners. I don't think we ever saw him again, did we? So He left soon after, I think. But you know, when people get into a situation in life, usually they'll come back for more. So I 
really impressed that these disciples came back the second time. Not only did they come back, but they got in the boat. And here they are doing exactly what Jesus had asked them to do, and they're rowing as hard as they can, and they just know that he's going to take care of them. But they get out in the middle of the sea. The scripture tells us it was the evening, and in the early morning, and the boat was already battered. So these guys were worn out. They were in that, find themselves in the same place where they just didn't know what the next step was. And as they are there, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. But I want to point out that it's early in the morning that he comes. So I was intrigued by that. So I began to think about that. Wonder why, why in the world did Jesus come in the early in the morning? Well, I've made a decision. I think it's because that's when we need him the most. Did you hear me? I think that's when we need him the most. Because if the skies are blue, and it's 72 degrees outside, and the waters are calm, it's no problem. I got this. If I'm around my friends, and we're eating, and we're drinking, we're having a joyous time, I'm fine. But when that storm comes against us, when we begin to get battered by the waves, when we don't know which way to turn, that's when we need him the most. Right? Absolutely. So one of the privileges I had was being selected for Air War College. Some of you probably know about that. That's held at Maxwell Air Force Base uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. There's a whole bunch of smart people sitting in a room listening to a whole bunch of smart people talk about today's problems in the world and solutions and sometimes no solutions. It's a very interesting place for a good old boy to be. I learned a lot in that. The one thing I learned is that I was the chief procrastinator in my class. So there was about 14 in a classroom. But I learned that uh, with all of the reading that I was doing, 140, 150 pages, sometimes 175 pages a night, and trying to consume and learn all this information. And then you get 30 or 40 days into it, then you have to write a paper. And the paper could only be about three pages long, if I remember correctly. But boy, what a, whoo, that was quite a challenge for me. But you know, I felt okay about it when I wasn't writing it. You know, I had all these ideas. You know, it's usually the four o'clock before the day I was due that I really began to get a little squirmish, a little worried about it. And I went back and reviewed my notes again, and I thought, yeah, I've got this. I'm okay. I can do this. Sat down and ate supper with the family. Seven o'clock came, and I thought, well, I've got to get back to work. And I looked at it, and I thought, well, this is not going to work. I need to start again. So then I started again. So nine o'clock, and then I came, and I was still working on this, and began to get a little more uncomfortable than I was at 4 o'clock, but I was still okay. Classes at 10 o'clock, that's about 11 hours, 11, 12 hours, so I got, I'm pretty good with this. Two in the morning came, I felt a little bit different about it. I was a little, little more nervous, and you could probably see the sweat beads. But you know, four in the morning came, and I looked down, and I didn't have a whole lot on paper. I was, I was praying, God help me. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to turn. All, it's the, all of this information and all these things, I need your help. 
Have you all been there before? We get in places in our lives that we are so overwhelmed by the circumstances that we're so understand overwhelmed by the information that we are receiving. We're so overwhelmed by the misinformation and we're so confused by what's going on, we forget what's important. And what this passage do, does for us is it reminds us what's important. You remember Jesus in this scripture, or Peter, looks to Jesus, and as long as he looks to Jesus, he's okay. But the moment that he becomes distracted, he loses a sense of purpose and a sense of mission. Now I went back in church history, I'm taking a class, since I got finished with working on terminal leave, I actually took a theology of the, Protestant, or the Protestantism in the United States, so it's kind of an interesting class. But we talked about the Puritans a little bit. One of the points of that class was when we, the problem that the Puritans had when they got to the States is that they had already been purified from the Church of England and from the Roman Catholic Church is what they were trying to do. So when they got to the States, they had to really think about another way of thinking and think about another way of doing because they were no longer anti-Catholic or they were no longer anti-Anglican Church. They were Puritans. So the question is, what's important? And so they began to struggle in their lives about what is important and they came up with the tulip. Uh, doctrine. Many of you who've studied the Bible and studied theology will remember that. But they began to talk about the, the things, the total depravity, things of being uh, uncon the unconditional grace and election of Jesus Christ. All of those things, all of those began to take shape for them. That it was only when they began to put away those things, those distractions from their past, and began to move forward, but when they took a, the, the, that step in the right direction, that intentional step that they begin to change and begin to mold and shape themselves into who they were. It became such a strong thing that it even influenced, Dr. influenced John Wesley, who had became really built who we are today. The purity of spirit and of heart. I want to tell you, it's important. Knowing who you are, and knowing whose you are in God's kingdom. I talked to a guy not too long ago, and he was talking about his faith, and he talked about, well, I've made my decision for the Christian faith, and, you know, it's a personal thing. It's a personal decision. And I thought, well, that's great. I said, what about the folks who are around you? How does it impact them? And he said, oh, it's, this is a personal decision. Well, I was reminded of the scripture that a decision to follow Christ, a decision to be in God's kingdom is not a personal decision. It's a community decision. If you look at that passage one more time, one of the things that captured my eye as I was reading it this time was once the storm calmed and Jesus was going back to the boat. He went back, they, he and Peter step into the boat, and what happens? 
they all worshiped and glorified God. That's what our community of faith is about. That's who we are. That's what's important. When Christ comes into our community and touches our lives, and we brings us through the most traumatic and the most difficult circumstances, we come back to a community of faith and we realize that this is what it's all about. And perhaps we can take that lesson or those le- that, and step up and help those who are around us and grow. But it's about the community. I was reading an article several years ago. It was talking about Pew uh, pre-research did a... Uh, a survey, and the question is, why in the world do people come to church? Well, people come to church to get closer to God, right? They come to church to give their children a foundation. They come to church to be a better person. They come to church to be a source of strength when they need it. I don't know if you realize it or not, but that's what we do best. That's what Ashland Place does best. When we find ourselves together at a worship service, and we'll do this in just a a moment, we will affirm our faith together. I believe in God the, the Father. We will affirm our faith together knowing that we are one body and we are one spirit, and no matter what happens to us and no what circumstances come in, the source of our beliefs, I believe in God the Father. We come together to make each other better. When we fall, when we see someone who's getting weak or someone who's having a hard time, we give them a phone call. We pick them up. We lift them up. We bring our children to children's church and to Sunday school. Not that they're going to understand all that's going on, but we plant a seed of faith, a mustard seed. So that when it all gets bad or when they begin to get confused in life, they know what's important. We also come together in the midst of darkness, in our darkest moments. And we find light in those who are around us and encouragement. We find the kingdom of God. And that's what faith is isn't it? It's faith in Jesus Christ and his kingdom being revealed to us so that we can give it to others. I'll tell you one military story, I promise. One. When I joined the Air Force, we had to do COT, Commissioned Officer Training. I'll try to leave all the acronyms out. But after COT, they began to do further training with you. And so because of some of the units that I was assigned with, they decided that we needed readiness training, which basically means they put you out in a campsite and you learn how to survive with very limited resources with lots of other confusing things going on. And they intentionally make it hard and may intentionally make it confusing. One training is called Silver Flag uh, down in Panama City, Florida. It's actually a civil, civil, again, 
working through the acronyms here, it's a CE civil engineering squadron called Rapid Runway Repair. So they go out and they fix runways. So somebody had a great idea that they're going to put chaplains in the midst of these folks and uh, let us understand how to work with young officers and allow us to work with the people on the ground who are actually doing the daily task or doing the daily job. It's a great experience. Then came the day for uh, when we were going to have MREs, meals ready to eat. I don't know if you've had that experience the last few years, but uh, that's a wonder. They're much better than they used to be. However, macaroni and cheese is ham, and it's not my favorite. So when I got my macaroni and cheese and my ham, I decided there had to be a better plan. And being that I grew up four miles from here, I knew the area pretty good. And so I decided I was gonna take a little walk. So I walked out to East Bay, found it with no problem, and realized that I was at Redfish Point, where I used to love to fish. So I found me nice little post that I could use, little stick that I could use for a gig, and I began to walk those shores, and I found a few flounder. I was pretty excited about that. I went back to the camp, and some of the CE guys, civil engineer guys, had already started a fire, and they were just trying to enjoy the evening, and I'm roasting fish. And so the young lieutenant looks at me, and he says, where in the world did you get that fish? And I said, right through there, about a three or four hundred yards. So here we went. We went out and began to catch flounder. Caught quite a few, actually, and it really, really went rather well. I thought we were doing well. And so until about two o'clock that morning and the instructors showed back up and uh, they were not happy with my decision. In fact, they surrounded us with their headlights, a very blinding thing, very disorienting thing, and came walking up and they said, who is responsible for this? And of course, true Air Force members, their heads all turned and looked at me. <laughs> so I took that one on the chin. I got a letter of counseling for that. I actually gave that letter of counseling back to the colonel when he retired, so he was a good friend of mine. But I learned something from that, too. It is very easy to get distracted by the things around you and forget your purpose and your mission. Before I left the Pentagon three years ago, there was a young general officer who came strutting down the hall. And uh, he looked up and he just said, Silver flag. I'm going, yes, sir. <laughs> he said, uh, chaps, he said, I want to tell you one thing. I said, what's that, sir? He said, Th thanks for teaching me how to fish. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Taking care of our people taking care of our community, taking care of those that we meet each day. We do that by taking that one step focused on Christ. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter where you find yourself. All he's asking you to do is one step. 
And when you fail, he will reach down and he will pick you up. It starts with one step. And it's not just about you. There are people who are watching. Your children, your grandchildren, your community of faith. They want to know who you lean on, what's important to you. It's one step in the right direction.